We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. Romans 6, starting at verse 1, says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with sin, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Well, we will at some point uh, later on get to that text, so do have that to hand. We'll be looking at some other places too. Um, There is an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make use of that as you see fit, and there will be an opportunity at the end to um, uh, make any comments or ask further questions or clarifications. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures, that they are everything that we need for salvation and godliness. And we pray, please, now, as we consider this topic of baptism, that the same spirit who inspired your scriptures to be written will illuminate our hearts and minds to understand uh, this topic. Uh, Please, Father, would you help us as a church to think these things through, both today and on Wednesday, and that you would give us the wisdom we need to be pleasing to you in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. So the subject that we're going to be thinking about this morning is baptism. And it's not something that we have really talked uh, about as a church. And one of the reasons for that is that there is hardly any teaching on the subject of baptism in the Bible. If you wanted teaching on the cross, you could go to Romans chapter 3. If you wanted teaching on spiritual gifts, you could go to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. If you wanted teaching on church leadership, you could go to Titus chapter 1. But there is no equivalent text in baptism. 
there's very little teaching on baptism in the Bible. Presumably because early believers thought the whole topic was very straightforward. That said, we cannot avoid it forever. And how we think about baptism is a fair question to ask. And so we're going to take some time this week to think the topic through together. Now, when we come to the subject of baptism, we come with a whole load of questions. Should we baptise babies? If not, how old do you need to be to be baptised? Do I need to be rebaptized if I was baptised as a baby? Does baptism need to be full immersion? Or is a sprinkling sufficient? So we come to this subject with a whole load bunch of issues. And what we need to try and do is to put those questions and issues aside for the moment and look afresh at the biblical data and see what the Bible actually says on the matter. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning, looking at what the Bible actually says about baptism. And we're going to do this by considering three questions. What is baptism? How is it to be administered? And who should be baptised? So today is really looking at what the Bible says about those three questions. And then on Wednesday at Growth Group, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to reflect further um, on this topic and the way forward for us as a church and church practice here at Trinity. And Tom will be uh, leading that. So hopefully it'll work quite nicely to have these two different formats um, and time to think in between. Well, let's begin then with the first question of what is baptism? Well, from the outset, we can say that baptism is a symbol. So nowhere does the Bible teach that baptism is some magical thing that you know, somehow using holy water that there is the power of God to make people Christians. Uh, indeed, the Apostle Peter affirms in 1 Peter 3.21 that we're not saved by the water, but by the appeal of a clean conscience towards God. But what then does baptism symbolise? Well, there are three common views that are held. Covenant acceptance, repentance, and a symbol of belief. Let's have a look at each in turn. The first view is that baptism symbolises covenant acceptance. It's the idea that baptism symbolises that God accepts us and we are one of the covenant people of God. So baptism here is working a bit like circumcision did in the Old Testament. The second view is that baptism symbolises repentance. It's the idea that baptism is a symbol of a putting to death of my old ways, of cleansing and of putting on my new life. So baptism here is a, it's an active symbol, a physical expression of repentance. The third view is that baptism is a symbol of belief. It's the idea that baptism is a testimony that I really am a Christian and I'm truly committed to Jesus Christ. So baptism here is me going public as a Christian. So these are three commonly held views I have come across 
all three. Now, to help us clarify what the three views are, we can talk about, um, talk in terms of movement. So, baptism as covenant acceptance is God's pledge to us that we are one of his people. So, we could think of it as an arrow going down from God to us. Baptism as repentance is our pleading to God for cleansing and new life with him. So we, we could think of that as an arrow going up from us to God, us pleading to God. And then baptism as a symbol of belief is our testifying to others that I am now a Christian. So we could think of that as an arrow going out from you or me to the rest of the church. Now, of course, all these things are very Christian and they're all related, but they are different. And part of the confusion on this topic uh, may well be because different people have different things in mind when they're talking about baptism. And so you know, at the outset, we want to clarify wh which baptism are we talking about. At this point is a bold claim of the three views uh, I can't find the first and third taught in the Bible, whereas the second view is. So let me explain. So the first view of baptism as covenant acceptance, um, I can't find it taught in the Bible. I mean, the closest argument is Colossians 2. But that's not talking about baptism replacing circumcision. The circumcision in view in Colossians 2 is spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart, about being buried with Christ and made alive with him. Similarly, the third view of baptism as a symbol of belief is taught nowhere in the Bible. I mean, it's striking, and that's why I picked um, that first reading in uh, Acts 16, that baptism in the New Testament always happens at the point of conversion. They're never told to wait until you go to church to get baptised. Still less wait until you've done a baptism preparation course. It, it, it's never later as a testimony to the church. And the third view requires a public baptism and will require you to wait until you got to church. But this idea is nowhere in the New Testament. Rather, in the New Testament, people are always baptised at the time and place where they're converted. So the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Cornelius, their baptisms all occurred at their point of conversion. Now, that baptism is a symbol of repentance is not surprising for us, just having studied Luke's Gospel. For in Luke uh, chapter 3, John the Baptist introduces baptism as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Luke 3 verse 3. Luke's gospel teaches that repentance is the response to the gospel. And that baptism always occurs at the point of conversion 
means that baptism is caught up with this idea of becoming a Christian and therefore of responding to the gospel in repentance. Now, Romans 6 is instructive at this point, um, which I read a bit earlier. Let me just uh, read uh, Romans 6, uh, verses 3 and 4. What Bowman's follow that helps says this. Do not know that all of us who've been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, Paul uses the word baptism here to refer to the conversion of a believer. So Paul assumes that when someone becomes a Christian, they're baptised. And it's at our conversion that we are united to Christ. And this union means, says Paul, that whatever happened to Jesus happened to the believer. So verse 3 talks about how a Christian has died with Christ. Our penalty for sin is dealt with. And verse 4 talks about how a Christian has been raised to new life. So just as Jesus rose from the grave with new life, so those in him have been raised to new life with him. So buried with him, raised with him. I mean, it's all language appropriate for repentance and it's tied to baptism. When you, put, when you begin to put this all together, it does seem to lead to a conclusion that baptism is a symbol of repentance. And baptism isn't just an arbitrary sign of repentance, you know, like a, a badge. It's an active symbol. It's actually quite a beautiful symbol of repentance. Baptism, baptism is the, the physical expression of repentance. Well, let's consider now the second question, and that is, how is baptism to be administered? Well, the Bible is almost totally silent on the questions that we ask, like on the issue of um, how much water should be used. We're simply just not told in the Bible. That said, there are a couple of observations that can be made about what the Bible says is key to the right administration of baptism. And the first concerns the name of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. An insightful case study of this can be found later in Acts chapter 19. If you recall, in Acts chapter 19, we find a group of disciples. And this group of disciples only knew the baptism of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. And many recognised that God had sent him and followed his command to be baptised. And so there was, in Israel at that time, a new group of disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, many of John's disciples became Jesus' disciples, but others, it would seem, carried on as John's disciples. And that's what this group is in Acts 19. Now, the situation's resolved with Paul teaching in Acts 19, verse 4, he says this, and Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, 
telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul taught them that Jesus was the Christ, and it was only then that they were baptised into the name of Jesus Christ and received the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, in many ways, Acts 19 is about John the Baptist's disciples. It's a unique group and therefore a unique moment in the spread of the gospel. So these are not normal people, but the remnant of Israel who believed in the last true prophet. So this group is not like any group that you come across today. But it does teach us that a key thing about the baptism is that we're to be baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in the words of Matthew 28, 19, that we're baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's the same name. Baptism is a plea for mercy from God. It's repentance towards this God and only on the basis of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that there's forgiveness and new life. So, so at the end of the day, the appeal for mercy is in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, a second key thing about the right administration of baptism is the need for a right spiritual attitude, one of repentance. And it's interesting at the beginning of Luke's gospel that the Pharisees were rebuked because they came for baptism, but they weren't repentant. John the Baptist would say to the crowds who came out to be baptised by them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, to, able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So simply getting wet without true repentance, well, that's worthless. Key to baptism is true repentance accompanied by the fruit of such repentance. And so it's these two elements then that are of first importance in the administration of baptism. And they're both about the right response to the gospel. So key is genuine repentance to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the final question that we're going to consider is who is to be baptised? So in the New Testament, those who are baptised are Jews, when they became Christians, and Gentiles, when they became Christians. Jews, when they crucified, repented, sorry, of crucifying the Christ, were baptised. Gentiles, when they repented of idolatry, were baptised. Now, it's interesting that the New Testament is silent on the matter of the baptism of babies. Nowhere does it say that they were baptised. Nowhere does it say that they weren't baptised. Neither does the New Testament say what to do with second-generation Christians. I mean, the Gentiles who were converted in the New Testament, well, they were all converts from idolatry. We've not yet got to the point where those converts have offspring and the question of, of what to do with them. 
In short, baptism in the New Testament is for converts from idolatry at the point of conversion. Now, many of us will be aware of the difference of opinion that exists today concerning whether or not babies should be baptised. And this difference, I think, can be understood or accounted for when we consider two apparently competing biblical ideas. The first idea is that each person must make their own commitment. The call for the gospel is repentance. And that can't be done by our parents. The second idea is that the children of believers have a special relationship with God. It's the idea found in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if we emphasise the first idea, um, that each person must make their own commitment, well, there's going to be a tendency then for us to wait for baptism until our children are of age, whatever that will be. But if we emphasise the second idea, the special place of children of believers with God, then the tendency is to baptise our children as babies. But both have difficulties. If we wait for baptism until our children are of age, we still take them to church when they're babies. We bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6, verse 4. And frankly, we bring them up as Christians. We teach them to call God Father. Because if we baptise our children as babies, then we then end up having such things as confirmation services for when they're of age. At the end of the day, the Bible is silent on baptising babies. And I take it that we're not to make rules where the Bible doesn't make them. So I think quite a lot of what we're going to find is that it's going to become a matter of Christian liberty. Rather than just pick a side, we live at liberty, with Christian freedom with one another, rather than be contentious where the Bible is not contentious. Well, in a moment, I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have on this material that sets out the field of play concerning this topic. But before I do, it is worth just bringing our attention how different our experiences will be in this area of baptism. Among us here, some of us have been baptised as babies. Some have been baptised as adults. Some haven't been baptised at all. Others who were baptised as babies have been rebaptized as adults. Still others have been confirmed. It, you know, it, it's a bit of a mess. And what do we do with that? What do we do with that um, complexity and messiness? Well, when we stop and think about it, much of what the church today is doing with baptism is not biblical. You know, if I were to ask the question... Who has been biblically baptised? That is, a pagan who was baptised at the point of their conversion. I mean, I had to wait nine months from the time of my conversion until I was baptised. You know, I was nine months too late to do what the Bible is talking about. 
And so as we think these things through, we need to bear in mind that the most important thing is our response to the gospel in repentance. Your baptism is not essential for salvation. It's only a symbol. At the end of our day, our confidence is not in whether or not we get wet, but in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me pray, and then we'll take it from there. Heavenly Fathers, we've, um, considering this topic of baptism, we thank you again how it's caused us to think about your gospel and how your gospel is the means by which we can have new life uh, with you and have our sins forgiven. Um, And we pray, Father, as we think through this topic, um, it is difficult for us because there is so little teaching on it in the New Testament. And pray, please, Uh, for patience with one another, that as we piece the bits of data together, uh, would you help us um, to um, understand uh, this topic uh, well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now it's time for questions and comments. Now, bearing in mind, we have Wednesday, and if you just think, oh, man, I just need to think about this, then by all means, you don't have to... You don't have now it's not like now is your chance. You can go away, think about it, maybe re-listen, and then we can talk about it on Wednesday. But by all means, if there are things to clarify or you'd like to start the discussion, now is your opportunity. Yeah, sure. So if baptism is a symbol of repentance, where do we get the freedom to baptize babies? That's the question. Okay, we're gonna we think about that on Wednesday. Any more questions? Basically, it's a nice list of questions. I'm just going to knock them out to Tom. So, <clears throat> so it's a good question, and you know, you know, I could be quite sympathetic and just think, well, if it's a symbol of repentance, then you know, babies, you know, what's going on with the baby? You know, we'll wait until they they repent, sort of thing, and when they're older. But. Um, well, there's a few things to say. Um, the first thing is... There's no record of babies being baptised in the New Testament. But there are no record of babies not being baptised. So both Lydia and the flipping chair, the whole household, are baptised. Does that include children? We just don't know. So the Bible never says, don't baptise your children. It never says, do. Um, and so I think, I think there seems to be good judgment in not then making a rule that you can or you cannot. Now, there may be some implication from our understanding of baptism that we just think, well, actually, we won't. 
but in terms of just making rules. Because I think if we do that, you end up having this, um, you know, we either become, you know, a, this type of church or that type of church. Um, and interestingly, if you haven't come across this before, um, uh, I don't know loads of churches, but I know um, several churches where they would allow for both. Um, so rather than having to make a decision, um, uh, they may have a plurality of elders, some of which would um, you know, baptize, prefer to baptise you know, believers' baptism, others baptise children, but there's that sort of understanding of actually there's a Christian freedom here, and so we're not going to make rules where the Bible doesn't make rules. So in that sense, we don't necessarily feel the pressure that we, we have to make a decision. Obviously, we'll have to think that through because if some people have their children baptised and other people don't, then when those children talk to each other, how are they going to understand what's happened? So, I mean, it, so that's that. Um, the thing about baptism as repentance, the thing with children, again, we just don't have any biblical data on it, is what do you do with children of believers? Because... Um, our prayer is, is that um, our children will never know a time when they weren't Christian. And so you're not waiting for their repentance because, you know, it's not like children are just in limbo land until they become of age, and like they go to secondary school, and then it's like, well, do you want to repent yet? We'll be baptised. I mean, it doesn't work like that. And so there isn't a neat answer, a neat answer there. Um, and I think... It goes back to these two kind of competing views that children of believers are special in God's sight, and therefore we tend to bring up our children as believers until, until otherwise. Um, but in many ways, I mean, you could say it would be a nice, clear answer to wait until children repent, but I just, in practice, I don't think that works because... Um, yeah, because of what I said. I don't know, does that... But, I mean, that would be what people... You no, know, that would be a... You know, that would be what people would run with and just say, we'd rather, we'd rather wait until, you know, they are committed Christians who've repented and then they receive a sign. It just may be that that sign is nine years too late in the sense of at their point of conversion. Yeah, and I guess it's true. I mean, Tom will, Tom's got a story on this, but the whole thing of if you're baptised as a baby, like when I was at Lily Grace's baptism of Tim and Fiona a few weeks ago, the way that that's done is that, you know, it's a, it's a promise, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a prayer that, that the parents are making that this, this, this child will then own for themselves. But in that sense, there's nothing sort of magical happening. It's, it's a... It's uh, this is this is what we pray for this child that the symbol that they're receiving will be that you know they will they will grow into sort of thing. Anybody else? You might be thinking, well, where does this all leave us? Well, I have to think about that.
です。Yep. So, question about what about um, uh, babies who die or um, uh, babies who are aborted? You know, how do we think about that? That sort of question. So, um, yeah, I, I think that in terms of actual what the Bible is specifically addressing that issue, I think there is very. Um, little that directly answers that question. So I think a place that people would go would be the death of David's son. Um, and he seems to talk about him, that he will see him again, so there's a confidence that he is not lost, but actually there is. Um, but um, I think, um, I think in the first instance, um, Uh, I'd want to um, be thinking about uh, who God is and our confidence in God. Because I guess in that situation, I mean, there'd be all sorts of things um, going on. And in it all, God's not changed. And we know who God is. And so I think that would probably be the, the direction and you know, and I guess that's why, like, you know, we spend our time thinking about who God is, so that as and when things happen, you know, we have all of that to fall back on and to think through. But rather than be worried or scared or anxious, we know that God is, um, we know the character of God, and that he, He's just and pure and perfect and good and sovereign, and therefore we can be confident in Him of that. Now. Some people would you know, would want to offer the reassurance of oh, actually, you know, go further than than that and say specifically, oh, I can reassure you that, um, yeah, I probably want to think that through a little bit more, um, Tom. Mm. But ultimately, God is the one who determines my salvation. 
about the yes yeah that's that's super helpful and i guess then you've got the whole thing of as children grow up they will then respond as is appropriate for them as one who has been predestined but if you're a child or you know, you're not even born then obviously our confidence isn't in how they repented in that response but actually are they chosen by god and therefore it's in the, their salvation is independent of them yeah thank you Time for one more. Caroline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, no, so it's a question for the recording. Where did baptism come from? Was it a new thing instituted by John? I remember that asking that question when we did Mark at our college and I didn't get an answer. But I have thought about it. No, I have thought about it since. So, but I think um, when you think about baptism, uh, is, is, is effectively it's, it's washing. That's the kind of the, the picture. And so you get it in Mark 7. So it's been said in Mark 7. You know when it says, um, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, I mean, it's a bit silly if I use the language, or oh, they, they baptise cups or baptise plates. But, it, but this whole idea of, of washing um, uh, and without washing, things are defiled, you know, that then becomes quite a... Um, common element in terms of um, uh, being undefiled, being pure, um, which you, know, you do find in the Old Testament in terms of um, pure, um, keeping the temple pure. I mean, there it's, it's funny because it's kind of sprinkled with blood. So in that sense, it's not... You know, in a lot of it, it's symbolic of you know, answering that question of how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people. Um, but of course, when you get to Mark 7, the Pharisees are much concerned with washing the outside and actually Jesus saying, actually, it's the heart that needs to be washed. And so I suppose when John the Baptist comes along and preaching a baptism for repentance of... a, baptism, a repentance for forgiveness of sins, he's preparing the people... But then he says, I can only wash you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptise in the Holy Spirit. And then that's the, that's a, a, that's the pledge of a clean conscience. That's the, the forgiveness of sins. So I think it's, I think it's in the category of, of washing, of um, dealing with defilement, that sort of thing. But in many ways, you know, John the Baptist, you know, he, he 
he pushes that to the wall and you've also got this idea of new life. So I don't know if that's sort of helpful. Um, yeah. I mean, in many ways, it is a lovely, it is a lovely symbol. It, it is, I mentioned before, that it's not just a, um, it's not arbitrary like a badge. You know, it is actually, if you were converted and you were, you, you were at the point of your repentance, you went down into water and came out. I mean, that's that kind of, it's like a sign at that kind of captures exactly what I've done because my old life is dead, my new life's come up, I've been washed clean. It's a, it's, um, uh, you can see how it, how it sort of works in that way. But it is fitting for the, the period of history where the gospel has been revealed because that's where those promises are fulfilled. Okay, um, let's leave it there because we have more time to chat about it. I've opened home and this week. Um, but we're going to sing a song. Now, this song, does anyone know it? It's called Oh, the Mercy of God. Two people. Okay, what we do, we'll play it through. Now, this song, it's a beautiful song, but for those of you who are doing Ephesians in Grace Group, uh, just to get the grey cells working, um, have a look at what material it uh, has put into song from Ephesians and the gospel.